Uh, for those of you that are remaining, we encourage you to grab your copy of God's Word. Turn to John chapter 16. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, of course, uh, it'll be on the screen behind me um, and also uh, in the bulletin as well. Uh, if you've been with us this Lenten season, you'll know we've been uh, looking at this uh, beautiful uh, passage in Scripture called the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, it's a passage that stretches from uh, John chapter 13 all the way into John chapter 17. And we haven't been able to cover all of it because there's just uh, so much in here, but we've tried to, to do our best to hit the highlights of this upper room discourse. And what we've seen is it's really Jesus' final sort of lengthy, quiet conversation that he is able to have with his disciples and his followers. It happened after Jesus, as a servant, had washed his disciples' feet and as they were celebrating the Passover meal together, having that last supper, this was the conversation that was at the dinner table uh, that evening. Our passage this morning looks at the, really the second half of John chapter 16. And what's significant about these words is, is we think these are Jesus' really final quiet words with his disciples. Uh, if you look at the next chapter, uh, John chapter 17, Jesus just breaks into prayer. And we get what's called the high priestly prayer, which is uh, Jesus praying to God the Father. And you get to hear the, the substance of their prayer amongst one another. And what you discover is, is that they're praying about us, that uh, we are on the heart of Jesus in his last moments. He even says, uh, to God the Father, I am praying for them. And so that's what John chapter 17 talks about. By John 18, Jesus has been uh, arrested. Um, he has been betrayed by Judas. And so John 16, which is what we're going to look at, the second half of that this morning, really are Jesus's final quiet words with his disciples. Now, we always, we never really know when our final words will come. Uh, if you saw uh, the email we sent out on Thursday, we talked about final words. And uh, I mentioned uh, in that email the final words of George Harrison from the Beatles. If you, uh, if you remember George Harrison from the Beatles, uh, in 2001, he was uh, dying of lung cancer. And I think he got a sense that he was about to die. And so he brings his wife and his son into the hospital. And the last words that he says to them are, love one another. Uh, on the other hand, you've got Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley, uh, his final recorded words are, I am going to the bathroom to read. No joke. That was Elvis's final words. I don't, you don't get the sense he knew that those were going to be his final words. And of course, we don't always know when our final words are going to come, but Jesus did. And so he wanted to make those final words count. That's what makes this passage of Scripture so significant this morning. Uh, this is Jesus' final words. And even that last verse in John 16 is his final words he wants his disciples to reflect upon. So let's read this passage together. I'll be reading from John uh, 16, verses 25 to 33. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you 
because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and you do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful week uh, for us this week, Lord. Um, This morning as we reflect on uh, that first Palm Sunday, as we think Thursday about your last supper, the night in which you spoke these words to your disciples, Lord, as they move into Good Friday and we reflect on your great sacrifice on our behalf. And then as we celebrate on Sunday morning, Uh, the Easter story, the resurrection, Father. May each one of these moments carry significance and power as we remind our hearts of them this morning and throughout the week. We pray that as we reflect on your word now that you would speak to us through it, that your spirit would enlighten our hearts to understand it, and that we would leave here changed as a result. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, as, I, as, we want to, as we look at this passage, I want us to really just think about three things. I want us to see uh, a bunch of confused followers uh, that become evident in this passage, a bunch of confused followers, a loving father and son, and finally, a victory that is assured. And hopefully through it all, we'll get a clear picture of the love and the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, despite our sins, despite our frailties, and despite our weaknesses. So let's start by looking at a a bunch of confused followers. And if you need proof of that, just look at verses 25 and 29. You see that that Jesus' disciples are really struggling to understand what Jesus uh, is saying. But that's really not new if you read the Gospels at all. Because if you read the Gospels at all, you'll see that, that Jesus confused a lot of people. Uh, He confused not just his disciples and followers, he confused a lot of people in his three-year ministry here on earth. Um, One of the things you notice is that the bulk of Jesus' teaching, uh, when he was teaching people, uh, came in the form of parables. And of course, parables use figurative language and artistry in order to communicate truth. So Jesus used a lot of parables. He had a lot of hard sayings at points that Uh, had the effect of disillusioning the crowd. Um, And so many times he said very hard things. And even those that were closest to Jesus, even his disciples, even his followers, really had a hard time understanding what he was talking about most of the time. They were scratching their heads very often, wondering, what is Jesus really getting at through all of this? Now, I think part of their confusion is that they had an inability to let go 
of what their expectations were of Jesus and his work. That's part of what made Jesus so confusing to them. And I think as we think about this, uh, we find that same tendency, we find that same struggle in our own lives and hearts as well. Here's what I mean by that. Each one of us, uh, all of us sitting here, we, we sort of expect certain things from God. And we often treat him according to those expectations and those agendas. You and I, we all have a picture of, of how this God thing should really work. And we often believe that our picture is the correct one. It is the right one. And so when Jesus comes and when Jesus acts off script, when our expectations and our agendas for Jesus don't get met, we often get frustrated. Uh, sometimes we get really angry. Um, and more often than not, we get very confused by what Jesus is doing. Because after all, he's not acting according to our agendas and according to our expectation. I think that's really true as we think about Palm Sunday in particular. Of course, this was the Sunday where we remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and we remember that large crowd that gathered together to welcome him into Jerusalem. They were singing his praises. They were waving palm branches. They were celebrating a king who was entering into Jerusalem. We often think about that as this really nice and sweet moment. But as you really think about it, I actually think this moment perhaps is, is the height of confusion when it comes to Jesus and what Jesus had come to do. You see, that whole crowd that had gathered that Palm Sunday to celebrate Jesus, they were expecting Jesus as the Messiah to now enter into Jerusalem and take over power and to take over his throne. They were expecting Jesus to finally come and to kick out the Romans and to fully establish Israel as its own kingdom. And his disciples were perhaps the most excited about these events taking place. After all, they'd given three years of their life to Jesus and now they were really excited and expecting these prominent places in Jesus's new kingdom that he was about to establish. This was really what was behind the frenzy and the excitement of that Palm Sunday. And yet, just days later, everything gets turned on its head. Just days later, that same crowd that was celebrating Jesus, that was waving the palm branches, that same crowd likely had turned completely around and were now shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Why had their hearts turned so much? Why would they go from one day singing his praises and the next day saying, crucify him? It's because they had confused their own agenda with the agenda of Jesus. They believed that their biggest problem in life was the Romans and that Jesus was now coming to take care of the Romans, to take care of their biggest problem. But Jesus knew that that wasn't their biggest problem. Jesus knew that their biggest problem was sin and that he would need to pay that ultimate price in order to solve that problem. 
You see, Jesus did not meet their expectations. He did not operate according to their script. And so they wound up crucifying him because of it. They wound up bringing about his death. And so all of this, all of this had to be swirling in the mind of Jesus' disciples that night as they were sharing that final meal with Jesus. They're wondering why all the figures of speech Why not speak plainly, Jesus, about what is about to happen? And so what we see is more confusion. Confusion at this dinner table, confusion that followed Jesus' disciples everywhere he went. They were confused throughout his ministry. And of course, they're going to be shocked at his death that is about to happen They would be befuddled even by the resurrection just days later. Really, you don't get a sense that they fully grasp Jesus' work and his mission until the Holy Spirit comes to them at Pentecost, and then they finally and truly begin to understand what this was really all about. Friends, I don't think we're all that different than Jesus' first disciples. I think we're often just as confused and befuddled by God's work as well, even in our own lives. But the beauty is that's why he gives us that same Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. Without it, we too would be just as lost in confusion. And so we see a bunch of confused people here. Um, But what we also see is that in the midst of this confusion, Jesus reminds them of something. Jesus reminds them of a loving father. Look at verse 27. He says this, For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. Now, I want you to think back for a moment uh, to when you were a kid. And, of course, we, we were all kids. We had parents, and our parents had certain rules or they did certain things uh, that we just had a hard time understanding as kids. Do you remember that? When you were young and wondering why your parents did the things that they did? And sometimes you'd even question them, especially when you were a teenager. Why this rule? Why are we doing it this way? Why are we doing it that way? We had all of these questions and sometimes we'd bring our questions to our parents and we'd never get a straight answer and it would drive us crazy because of that. And part of the reason we didn't get a straight answer is that we, as kids, didn't always see the big picture like our parents did. And so our parents would say things to us like this, hey, just trust us, we do this because we love you. Trust us, we do this because we love you. I can remember I hated it when my parents said that to me, and you probably did as well. You couldn't quite understand it and understand what they were trying to say. And now, ironically, I say the same things to my kids, I say, I know you're confused, but you need, just need to trust me because I love you. Now, I think that's exactly what's going on in our passage here this morning. It's as, G- as if Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying, guys, I know that you're confused. I know that you're befuddled. And, and what is about to happen will be even more confusing to you. The height of your confusion will be when you see me hanging on a cross, dying, giving my life away. But in the midst of that confusion, do this. Trust 
in my love. Trust in my love. Both the Father and I love you more than you can imagine. And so you need to hang your hat on that. You need to trust in my love over these next few days. And again, friends, I think Jesus says the same thing to you and to me. Have you ever been confused by God's plan for your life? Have you ever had questions and wondered about what God is doing? Have you ever looked at the circumstances of your life and, and, and given God that million-dollar question, God, why? Why this circumstance? You wonder, God, have you sort of fallen asleep at the wheel or did you look away for a little while? You wonder, how, God, could you possibly get any glory from the situation that I find myself in in this moment? I know I think that regularly about what God is doing. And the truth of the matter is Jesus regularly doesn't give us answers to those questions that life presents us. But what he does do every step of the way is he assures us of his love for us. He assures us of not just his love, but the love of the Father as well. That's what's so beautiful about this passage here. But what I think is also beautiful here is this, is that Jesus knew not only that they were confused, and that's why he tried to affirm his love for them, didn't give them answers, but affirmed his love. He, he knew they were confused, but he also knew, and the passage even says it, he also knew that they were about to scatter, that they were about to scatter, that when Jesus is, was arrested, which was about to happen just a few hours later, when Jesus was arrested, he knew that every single one of them would run away, that they would run and they would hide. He knew that Peter would keep a safe distance, but even as he kept that safe distance, he would still deny Jesus three times in the next few hours. He knew that at the foot of the cross that next day, most of them would be nowhere to be found. He knew that they would be cowering in their homes in the moment of his greatest need. He knew that all of them would run away. He knew all of them would hide. He knew all of this would take place, and yet he loved them anyway. He loved them anyway. What a picture. What a picture of the grace and the love of God. That grace, that love that is bigger than our doubts and our confusions. Grace and love that is bigger than our denials and our cowardice. Grace and love that is bigger than our sins and our betrayals. You see, friends, the grace of God, it finds us in our sin, it finds us in our weaknesses, and it reminds us that we are loved by God. And so we see here a bunch of confused disciples. We see a picture of a loving father. In fact, we see a loving father conspiring with a loving son to accomplish our salvation. Finally, we see, verse 33, a victory that is assured. A victory that is assured. Look at verse 33 again, and now think of this as Jesus' final words, his final quiet words he shares with his disciples, the words he wants ringing in their minds over the next few hours and the next few days. Verse 33 I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome 
the world. Now, we've talked in this series about how the road that lied ahead for Jesus' disciples would be a difficult one. We've talked about the persecution, the martyrdom that so many of them would have to face. And so Jesus, knowing all these things, wants to remind them that he offers them peace in the midst of that road. He offers them peace in the midst of all of it. And that, of course, becomes clear in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, the first martyr for Jesus Christ, is killed for his faith. It says this in Acts chapter 7 about Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, in this moment where he is giving his life up for the sake of Christ, he gets a vision of Jesus that gives him peace and even joy as the stones flew through the air and began to crush his body. You see, friend, Jesus offers us peace in the midst of whatever storm we may face. You and I might not face a whole lot of fierce persecution and even martyrdom like Jesus' first disciples did, but we certainly do experience our fair share of tribulations and troubles. As I thought about that this week, all I had to do was turn on the news and watch for about 10 minutes, right? That's all we have to do is to turn on the news and watch for 10 minutes to think about all the things that have just happened this week in our world that would certainly classify as tribulation and trouble. This week, we've seen mass shootings in Colorado and Atlanta. This week, we've seen a crisis at the border with thousands of children being displaced and living in all sorts of inhumane conditions. We've seen trains collide in Egypt, killing over 30 people. And we've, not to mention the fact that we've seen 65-plus people who've lost their lives in the streets of Baltimore to shootings just this year, outpacing where we were at this time last year, some of those big victims as young as 10 years old. And to make matters worse, all these things happen within the context of unjust and corrupt systems that just seem to keep these tragedies continuing on and on and on. And we wonder, will these things ever change? Will these unjust systems and structures that bring about such heartache and pain and hardship, will these things ever change? And yet Jesus' words to us are the same Take heart, take heart, I have overcome the world. But of course, when it comes to, to tribulations and trials, we, we, we can look at the news and see what's going on in our world, but sometimes we don't have to even look beyond our own lives, right? Maybe you're sitting here and you're dealing with some sort of financial pressure and you're wondering how you're going to be able to pay the bills this month. Maybe you're sitting here with some sort of health issue wondering where the healing is going to come from. Maybe you're sitting here dealing with a relationship issue, wondering if reconciliation will ever be possible in that relationship. Maybe you're dealing with some addiction, wondering whether freedom is ever possible. 
Well, that's why Jesus' words are so significant here. They remind us that as big as those circumstances and difficulties are, Jesus is bigger. Jesus has overcome it all. Friends, one of the beautiful things about our faith, one of the beautiful things about Christianity is it's honest. It's honest. It doesn't shy away from the problems. It doesn't offer us a pie-in-the-sky view of our world that is around us. In fact, Jesus even guarantees to us here, you will have troubles. Guaranteed. You will have them. You will have tribulation. But only in Jesus can we find peace in the midst of it all. Only in Jesus can we find peace in the midst of the storms that life sends our way. That word peace that Jesus uses here uh, is actually uh, the word shalom. And when you translate shalom into English, it loses a lot. Because that word shalom means so much more than just our English word for peace. It's, it's a fuller concept that sometimes get lost into translation. And the best translation I've heard for shalom is it, it certainly includes the ideas of peace, but it's so much more than that. It, 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 it's a full-bodied sense of well-being. A sense of well-being that touches every piece of our lives, whether it's emotional or spiritual or physical, it is a full-bodied sense of well-being. And so what Jesus is saying here is that only in Him, only in Jesus, can your soul be well in the fullest of sense, whether or not you're in the midst of trouble and tribulation whether or not you are in the midst of a storm. Now, don't forget, in the midst of those storms, Jesus may not give you the answers as to why. In fact, often he doesn't give us those answers, but he does give you peace, assuring you of the love of the Father. You see, the disciples were about to face a really big storm, that storm would culminate in the crucifixion of Jesus. Their hearts would be troubled, and that's why Jesus' final words to them are this. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Friend, whatever storm you may be facing right now, and chances are all of us are facing some sort of storm in our life, whatever storm you are facing now, Jesus has overcome it. Jesus is bigger. And so find your peace, find your shalom in the love that God has for you. Let's pray.